I hope you all all had a great new moon and have enjoyed the good rest that we've had from the Sabbath to the new moon. Um, you always good to give us some rest from our work and our mundane, everyday lives. It's, it's, good to, it's good to have the rest. He set apart these days for us to rest, but not only that, he's also commanded that we concentrate on him and do the work that he's given us to do during those times. I think about the priest who had to work on the Sabbath days. You know, they prepared all the, all the offerings and things like that. They still had to work. They had a job to do. One such commandment for us to do on the Sabbath day is to congregate together in a holy way and to read and study Yahweh's Word. So we're here today congregating together. We sang the praise songs. We've uh, had a public reading. Now it's time to study His Word. And it's not only commanded that we do so, but it's also necessary that we do so uh, for the well-being of the believer. An effort to grow and mature in stature and in wisdom so that um, you know, we'll be what we should be for Yahweh. We do all things for the glory of Yahweh, right? That's what we do what we do for. And therefore, we do it all with excellence. As uh, Sandy likes to say, we do an excellent job. We do it with excellence. We do it with great precision. Not goofing off, not cutting up, not taking things haphazardly. But with all diligence, we study His Word. We practice His commands and we live out His truths one day at a time. And that's not limited to, but that's including keeping the Sabbaths and the new moons. Yes. So with that being said, I hope you guys are ready to study the book of Acts today. That's Yahweh's word too. That's Yahweh's word. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm planning on doing today. I've made it this far. If Yahweh don't stop me before we get through it, that's what we're going to do. Study the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of the Almighty. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods, what the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Yeshua, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. We have a recap of the Messiah's message when he was on earth. We have his, his suffering, his resurrection, his appearing, his ascension, and the promise of his return all bound up in those first 11 verses in the first chapter of Acts. It's pretty incredible to me. <clears throat> well, the last time that I taught, we went over the first three verses of chapter 1, and there were so many positive things said to me afterwards about that sermon. I actually just thought I would teach it again. So I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. 
but I did receive a lot of positive feedback. A lot of people said that they liked the sermon, and it seemed like a lot of people are enjoying the book of Acts so far. I know that we're not far into it, but but as for the first chapter, it seems like a lot of people are enjoying it. Now, the introduction that I taught last time was somewhat elementary, or at least I thought it was elementary, but it contained some key points that I thought were necessary in understanding the letter before we can continue on in our study. So for a quick review, let me remind you of what we learned in the first three verses, and then we'll get started. In today's lesson, we'll start to unpack the, uh, the, rest, of, the rest of the next four verses in, a, in this very small start of this enormous, enormous book of Acts. So last time I taught, we discovered some fundamental things, and the first thing that we discovered was who wrote the letter. And um, anybody remember who it was? Luke. Luke. That's right, it was Luke. We talked about Luke's character a little bit, uh, and kind of checked out who he was and what his credentials were and how it pertains to him being qualified to write the first narrative uh, here, or to write his narrative, which was is actually the second narrative. And then we also discovered who the letter was written to. Anybody remember that? Theophilus. Theophilus. I like it when people pay attention. It's good to get some feedback there. Uh, but um, Luke calls him something special when his first got in the gospel. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. Okay? That's what he refers to him as. Well, we speculated a little bit about who Theophilus was. Um, and I'm not sure that we can prove anything that we think, but we talked about who he was and a lot of speculation there. But according to most scholars, it seems that Theophilus was a man of great influence and uh, financial resources, possibility. Um, I don't think anybody really knows, but we know that he was from Antioch and then everything else is probably speculation. But we think that he, or scholars think that he may have requested a copy of the life, the ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, as well as an account of the apostolic ministry that took place for about 30 years after the death of Christ. <clears throat> and so Luke writes them both, the recount of Yeshua's life and ministry and the gospel according to Luke, and then the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts. Okay? We discussed the dates of both these letters, of both of these letters, which took place about 60 years after the birth of Yeshua, about 30 years after his death. And that's incredibly important. The dates are important there. It's important that we remember those things. Time frames are necessary, and we'll see this as we start to unpack this book over the next uh, several teachings, how important that the time frames are. It's important to know these things and when they took place so that we can line things up in chronological order. Sometimes it's not always necessary, but in some cases it is. Has anybody thought about this? The Gospel of Luke wasn't even written until the story of Acts had already played out. Both of the life of Yeshua and the ministry of Acts had already physically taken place and Luke don't write the gospel. He doesn't write the gospel at the end of Luke. At the end of Christ's life, he doesn't write the gospel of Luke, but rather Luke's the, the, the life of Christ takes place, then the, the 30 years of ministry in the book of Acts takes place, and then all of a sudden he writes both gospels, and he, I mean both letters or narratives, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he writes them back to back to back. So um, it takes about two years right there. It seems to be, I think both of them were kind of released or penned and then released somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. Okay? okay. So time frames are important. We can learn a lot from accurate dating. Um, so that covers the author. That covers the recipient. And that also, also covers the date by which they were penned. What about the reason for the letter? 
What about that reason? We discovered that this book or letter was written so that Theophilus might know about all of Yeshua's ministry and what he continued to do after his death. The first letter was written about what Yeshua began to do and teach. And then the letter, or this letter, the book of Acts, was written about what Yeshua continued to do and teach through the Acts of the Apostles. That's why the, the, the book is called Acts. Most people think it's the Acts of the Apostles. But this letter is written about what the, the Acts of the Apostles, by the help of the Holy Spirit, under the commission of Yeshua, and through the plan of Yahweh. A lot of, a lot of things had to do with what goes on in in the book of Acts, not just the Acts of Apostles. Okay, We also talked about the message that was to be carried to all the known world. We know that Yeshua came preaching one message, and that was the message about the kingdom of Yahweh being at hand. Mm. He instructed the apostles to carry that ministry, to carry it on, and to carry the kingdom message to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. What a task, huh? What a task. He tells 12 men... I want you to carry the gospel to the rest of the world. Pretty big, pretty big feat, I would think. What could you do with 12 men? Mm. Do you think that you could spread the gospel of the kingdom across the globe with 12 men? These are the kind of things that I think about. This is how weird I am. I'm sitting there thinking, he's only got 12 men. 11, one of them's dead. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all go take the message all across the world. Let's see how that goes. You know, I wouldn't even attempt it. And in some ways, I think Yeshua may have had his doubts. I think, I think he might have thought, mm, I don't know if these boys are cut out for what I'm fixing to put on them. It would be a vast undertaking, okay, for any enterprise to spread across the world with, with 12 people. It doesn't matter what we're trying to do. It would be a vast undertaking. But especially a message that nobody wanted to hear. Nobody wanted to hear their message. I don't want to get ahead of myself, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But nobody wanted to hear their message. But since this is going to be such a massive job, I think maybe... Yeshua knew that his disciples would lose heart. They would lose hope if he didn't, have to, if he didn't do anything, if, if they didn't have anything for him to put hope in. So in effort to build their faith, he appears to them for 40 days after his resurrection and he gives them many convincing proofs. You remember we went over that last time in verse 3. The reason for all the convincing proofs for the build, was for the building of their faith. They were going to need a hitching post. They're going to need an anchor. The winds of life are fixing to get rough. Okay, they're going to have to have something to be grounded in. And the grounded, what they were going to be grounded in, one of the things was the resurrection of the Messiah. In Ephesians chapter 2, we talked about that last time, how that was one of the, one of the great ways that Yahweh displayed his power and his strength was the resurrection of the, of the Son of Yahweh. Mm. The storms were about to get real and they needed something strong to hold on to. It's a faith builder. It's something to give them strength, something to help them go forward with their mission. So as we start into verse 4 today, I want you to keep in mind what we're working with here. You think about, I want you to think about this. Think about 11 apostles at this point. Okay, we've not, we've not adopted another one yet. So there's 11 left, one's dead. There's 11 apostles, and they're fixing to take on a ministry that has been conducted by their master for the last three years. All right, they're going to take that on. That's their, that's their job. We have 11 discouraged Disciples who have just lost their master. Not just that he's not there. They've just lost him. He was killed. Right? Whom they thought was the one that was sent from Yahweh to restore a kingdom. You remember in Luke chapter 24, we talked about last time how 
the two that were on the road to Emmaus, they come back, they're dining, they're sitting and they're together and they're talking to each other and one and they look at each other and are they talking to Yeshua and they say, We thought this Yeshua was the one sent to redeem Israel. Alright? So there's a little bit of doubt going on right there, but they thought that he was to restore the kingdom. And um like David would have maybe. You know, a different way than we're thinking about restoration, they're thinking like maybe the way that David would have restored the kingdom. Now he's gone. The Messiah's gone. They've lost all hope. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. They're in need of direction. And now let's read verse 4. It says, While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave, but to wait for the Father's promise. I want you to stop right there for a second. While he was together with them. When is this? Is it during his ministry while he was alive that he commanded them these things? Or is it after uh, his ministry while he's visiting for 40 days, after his resurrection? In order to set a time frame, it's very important to know these things. So when is he referring to being there with them? When's he talking about? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24 real quick. I'm going to give you a second to get there. and We're going we're gonna to build this. Verse 36 in the 24th chapter of Luke. It says this. I'm going to read through verse 39. It says, And as they were saying these things, he himself, he himself stood among them. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. So this is the risen Messiah that we're talking about. This is the time frame when all this takes place. He's already risen from the dead. He's standing among them right here, okay? Now that same time frame, this has all taken place at that same time. But skip down to verse, verse 48 and let's read it. Verse 48, it says, You are witnesses of these things. Verse 49, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered on high. This corresponds with Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. This shows us when it takes place. Okay? So while he was with them, means after his resurrection, during the 40 days of showing himself, and actually, if you want to know specifics it's actually on the first day of the week it's the first day of the week the 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 lord's supper takes place on the night of the 13th the dawning of the 14th which is at evening 14th day the messiah is tried in the morning or during the night in the morning the 14th day he's crucified he lays in the grave starting the night of the 14th he lays there all day on the 15th he's resurrected early the 16th morning or the morning of the 16th that's the third day and during that, and on the that's the first day of the week, by the way. And then he goes and presents himself to them in the upper room, and that's when this is taking place right here. That's the first day of the week. Okay, that's why that's how all that unfolds right there. And he tells them to stay in Jerusalem. He says, "Don't leave, don't leave. You stay right here." He tells them to wait for the Father's promise. This is twice that he's mentioned the Father's promise. So what is that? What is the promise? That the Father has made, or what is the Father's promise? Imagine the apostles and how they would have felt about him saying that. Wait for the Father's promise. 
Imagine what's going through their mind. You've got to think like a disciple. You've got to think like an apostle. You have to put yourself back in this place, and you've got to realize what all's going on, and you have to think that way. What in the world's going through their mind? What are we waiting on? I can imagine Philip hitting Bartholomew. Hey, man, you have any idea what this cat's talking about? You know, or Matthew saying, hmm, Philip, enlighten us. We don't know what the Father's promise is. I don't think they know exactly what they were waiting on. I don't think they knew. Some people may argue that they did, but I don't think they knew exactly what they were waiting on. Hence the reason they were uh, that the Messiah starts to clarify it. He starts to clarify it, and he tells them what the promise is that they're looking for. Look back to Acts chapter 1. Go back there if you're still in Luke. But back in Acts chapter 1, uh, and continuing on at the end of verse 4, and then in verse 5, Yeshua says, this is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, we're going to camp out right here for a little while. We're going to be here. Get your notebook out. It's going to take a minute. This is the Father's promise, but there are so many things that can be said about this. It's hard to pick a starting point. Okay, I had a hard time uh, laying this sermon out. But remember, Yeshua tells them not to leave Jerusalem, but to stay and wait. So the first question I think we should ask is, why are they in Jerusalem to start with? Mm. These are Galilean men, right? They don't live in Jerusalem. They live north of Jerusalem, mm. right? At least seven of them are Gal Galilean fishermen, and they don't live in Jerusalem. They fish in Galilee. So why are they in Jerusalem anyways? I mentioned this um, last time that I talked. But what has just taken place in Jerusalem? Passover. Passover. The death of the Messiah, number one, the Passover has taken place. The Messiah was killed on the 14th day of Abib, which was Passover, and these Galileans were Jews. All right, sure. They were Jews. They were there not only following Yeshua, but also they were there keeping the feast. And by following Yeshua and keeping the commands, they ended up where every other male person who practiced the Torah would have been. Yeah. They were where all males were to present themselves three times a year. That being where Yahweh chose to put his name or to have his name dwell. Used to be Shiloh at this point in history. It's Jerusalem. Okay? So that's why they were there. They were there keeping Passover. But why haven't they gone home? Well, I think that they were waiting to see if the Messiah would really uh, be raised from the dead. Okay, that's one point. The other point is that um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows Passover. Right, yeah. inclusive Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is an eight-day feast. Sure. Right, sure. so they have to be there. They're still there after Passover. Passover took place on the fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth is when this is taking place. We're only second day in the Unleavened Bread, so they're still there. They're keeping the feast. They're commanded to be in Jerusalem. Right. But he says, "Don't leave. Do not leave. Stay in Jerusalem." Yeah. So, and keep in mind that the day he tells them to stay in Jerusalem is the same day that he was resurrected. Trying to tie all this stuff together. In your own study time, go back and read all of Luke chapter 24. We can see the events unfold from the Emmaus Road all the way to the upper room, to him eating the fish, to him telling them to stay in Jerusalem. That's all right there in Luke 24. You can do that on your own time. Here's a side note just for extra, and I'm not going to charge you for this. I believe they're still in the same room that Yeshua told them to go to and prepare the Passover. Wow. I don't think they've changed rooms. Okay? You can read about that in Luke chapter 22 and verses uh, 9 through 13. You know, he tells them they come into the city, tells them to go get a room to prepare to t keep the Passover. All right? You can read about that. It's where they were going to keep the Passover. Now, Yeshua obviously never kept the Passover. All right? 
he, he died at the same time the Passover lambs would have been killed, so he didn't keep the Passover, but it is where the first Lord's Supper ever took place. Yeah, All right? So I think this is where they're at after his death, uh, after the death of Yeshua. They're still in amazement that he has died, and they haven't left Jerusalem to go home yet. So before they can get out of town, Yeshua shows up and he says, Don't leave. Stay in the city until you receive the Father's promise. So that's where they're at. But still, what in the world is the Father's promise? I can imagine they're still scratching their head. What is he talking about? Well, Yeshua kind of alludes to it in verse 5 when he tells them that they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But I want to dig a little bit deeper than that. Now, Yeshua says, this is what you heard from me, or this is what I told you about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to look at that word baptized right there and um, start thinking about that kind of baptism. When you see the word baptized, I want you to vision an absorption, mm-hmm. a saturation, an immersion. Okay, Not a sprinkling or a washing with water, but rather a complete immersion because it refers to being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Mm. All right, And I think the immersion of the Spirit is an overwhelming in the Spirit, an absorption or a saturation, if you will. Yeshua tells them to wait for the immersion of the Spirit. This is what the Father promised. This is what they're waiting on. But when was this promise? When was it promised? Was it promised to the apostles? Was it promised to the men of old? Was it promised to Israel? Was it promised to Judah? Was it promised to Gentiles? When when, When did the promise take place? Let's look back at the book of Joel in chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 through 32 is what I'm going to read. There's a whole lot to be uncovered in this passage or in this chapter, but uh, we're not going to deal with it today. We're only going to deal with that which uh, pertains to the sermon. So, Joel chapter 2, 28. It says, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of Yahweh comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as Yahweh promised among the survivors, Yahweh calls. So Yahweh promises, back in the book of Joel, that he will pour out his spirit on mankind and he would cause them to prophesy, dream, and see visions. If you write in your Bible, make a circle around the word slaves in verse 29. That is the Hebrew word abed. It's the same word that is used In Isaiah 53, in light of Yeshua, he is called Yahweh's servant or Yahweh's abed. Absolutely. Here in this place, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 29, it's talking about the apostles that are going to receive the Spirit. Mm. Okay? So you can tie all that in a little bit later, but make a note right there while you're there. This is the promise that the 11 are waiting for. They're waiting on the promise of Yahweh, and this is it. But why? Why do they need to be... Why do they need to wait on an immersion of the Holy Spirit? Do the disciples not already have the Holy Spirit? Mm. 
We know that people of old, before the time of Christ, had the Holy Spirit, right? We know that David, King David, had the Holy Spirit. He said, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. We read in Numbers 11 a while ago about a partial portion of the Spirit being removed from Moses and given to the 70 elders. So we know about the Spirit that dwelt within men, okay? So do they not... Uh, Do they not have the Holy Spirit? Are they not believers and followers of Yeshua? Do they not believe in Yahweh? Sure they are. Sure they are. And according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, they would have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit at the time that they heard the gospel, right? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, "In In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Him when you believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So shouldn't the apostles already have the Holy Spirit, wouldn't you think? They, they walked hand in hand with the Messiah. They believed in Him, mm-hmm. right? Well, I would think so because once you have faith in Yeshua, you should be sealed. At least that's what Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says. So why do we need to wait or why do they need to wait on the, or for the Holy Spirit? Let me pr- propose something to you. And you can check this out in your own time too. I'm giving you plenty of homework. But uh, let me propose this to you. What if this promise of the empowerment is not a sealing of the Holy Spirit? Let's say that the sealing of the Holy Spirit has already taken place in the apostles, like Ephesians tells us that it will. But what if this is a special empowerment for the ability to minister, prophesy, to speak in other language, raise the dead, heal the sick, all that kind of stuff, like no other empowerment ever given? Let me, let me lay something out for you. It'll take me just a minute, but I'm going to lay it out for you. When the Messiah was born, was he not? Was Mary not overshadowed by the Holy Spirit? The, the scriptures say that the, the Messiah was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, right? Yeah. We believe that he had the Holy Spirit before his baptism. Yeah. I would say that he had the Holy Spirit before his baptism, right? When the Messiah goes to John the Baptist to be baptized and the floors of heaven open up and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And Yahweh says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's empowered with the Holy Spirit. It's right before he starts his ministry, right? Yeah. Right before he starts his ministry. It's right before he goes up into the mountain, before he's challenged by Satan and all that kind of stuff. After he starts his ministry, what's the first thing that he does? At a, at the, what's the first miraculous thing that he does? He turns the water into wine. The next thing he does is heal the blind, the lame, the lepers. He raises the dead, calls people out of tombs. He turns fish into multiple fish, bread into bigger bread. He understands what people says. He tells the woman in John 4 at the well that he he already knew that she had several husbands, things like that. He's got all kind of power, right? I don't think that he had all that kind of power before before his baptism into the Holy Spirit. Okay? I believe that it was given to him to be able to do all these kind of things. Let me take it a step further. Three years later, the apostles are taking on the same ministry that the Messiah has been pushing for the last three years. Right? They're going to need something to help them. Nobody believes their ministry anyway. Nobody believed the Messiah when he was there, hence the reason that he kept on promoting are proven things by the by miraculous things, you know, turning the water into wine, healing the lame, causing the I mean, causing the lame to walk, making the blind to see. They didn't believe it. 
the the apostles are fixing to take off in the same ministry. How in the world are they going to be are they going to be believed if they can't do some of the same things that he did mm. before they start their ministry? He says, "You wait on the Father's promise." Now we're going to take it back to John fourteen real quick, and I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to start in verse nine. Yeshua said to him, "Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip?" The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Mm. He's talking about miraculous works right here. Believe me because of the works, okay? I assure you, the one who believes in me, carrying on in verse 12 here, I assure you the one who believes in me will also do what do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, you obviously can't do a greater work than raising the dead, right? That's pretty, that's pretty stout right there. But you can do more of raising the dead than the Messiah does because there's 11 of you or 12 of you that's supposed to be doing it. That's where the great comes in at. It's greater in multitude, not greater in, in uh, specifics, okay? Verse 13, it says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, verse 15. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. This is the Holy Spirit, guys. This is what they're waiting on. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you do know Him because He remains with you and will, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Mm. Mm. This, is, this is the empowerment that they 